The first five verses of Revelation chapter 22 are a continuation from chapter 21 of the description of the eternal state in the New Jerusalem. It's as if we have here either another awkward chapter division, because it just flows right in, or better yet, both chapters are meant to be one. They, they flow together. They, they have the same kind of structure, 21 and 22. Uh, they, they, and both chapters alternate between descriptions of life on the new earth and a direct exchange with their readers. So I, I just quickly outline this so that we can see. On this side, descriptive narrative. In other words, what is life going to be like in the, in the eternal state? Uh, beginning with the beginning of 21. But then these are interspersed where Christ or John or an angel speak directly to us. They're, they're not really talking about the end times. They're talking about us today. You know, in other words, based on this, this. And so that shows how they... And then verses 8 to, eight to 9 in 22 is an angelic rebuke. Uh, kind of sits there all by itself. And then most of 22, beginning with verse 10 to the end, is all speaking to us. So that's, you can just leave that up, but that's, that's the order. That's how these two chapters are arranged. So let's begin with these first five verses. Revelation 22, 1 to 5, right there. Scott, Scott, stop. There she is. Now, you can go out and have a smoke. You're done. <laughs> Isn't he great, folks? He'll be back. He'll be back. All right. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Continuing from verse 23 in chapter 21, an angel, presumably the angel from verses 9 to 10 in chapter 21, shows the Apostle John more details from that main central street described in verse 21. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I'm looking forward to seeing that in person. Much has been made of this river and its accompanying tree by expositors and commentators. The river seems to hearken back to the river flowing out of Jerusalem after the world has been reshaped and Christ returns in Zechariah 14. Which is why not a few interpreters say this is really talking about the millennium. This, these chapters are really talking about the millennium. The imagery is, of course, similar, but this is a different sort of river. 
And the tree reminds us of the tree of life mentioned in the Eden narrative as situated in the center of the garden in Genesis 2.9. Some say this is the heavenly version of that tree, just like there's a heavenly temple. It's possible that both of these, the river and the tree, can be interpreted literally. That's possible, and I would have no quarrel with anyone doing that. An actual crystalline river running down the center of the street from the thrones of God and the Lamb, and a literal tree bearing year-round fruit. But I believe the, the better interpretation, and both, again, both can live simultaneously. There can be a literal tree and a literal river, and what I'm about to say be true. So everybody's happy. The river and the tree are visions representing timeless truths, both of which pertain to redemption and eternal life in Christ, spoken of throughout Scripture. So let's look at some things that that show this. First, the river of the water of life. In the prophecy of Jeremiah, Yahweh expresses anger and disbelief over Israel's rejection of him. And so Yahweh says, be appalled. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 to 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. What an incredible picture of today. People have rejected the true God to build things on their own. Here the living waters represents the life Israel would enjoy if it would just obey and worship the Lord rather than other gods. Yahweh refers to himself as the fountain of these living waters. He's the source. In the John 4 scene with the Samaritan woman, Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. John 4.10. She thinks he's speaking of water to drink, of course, but Jesus goes on to explain. Everyone who drinks of this water, the well water, the real water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Thus the idea of living water moves from obedience to Yahweh to faith in Christ Jesus, both associated with a good life in the present and in Christ a good life for all eternity. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus cries out at the feast in Jerusalem, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Here again, the reference is to eternal life. But in the next verse, John explains that here it also refers to the receiving of the Holy Spirit. But this, but this he spoke of the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John 7, verse 37 to 39. Perhaps the most clarifying statement from the Lord about this is found in Revelation 21, 6. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now we know from the con he's, he's not talking about a drink of water. He's talking about something else. And that those last two words set the context. This water of life is not obtained by obeying the law, nor is it obtained by good works but is given by grace freely to those who thirst for it. Referring clearly to salvation in Christ, resulting in eternal life with Him. The pattern set in God's Word is that water of life, or living water, is a picture of eternal life, flowing from the throne of God by means of the Spirit, as Walvard writes, this future river which is in the New Jerusalem speaks of the power, purity, and eternal life manifest in the heavenly city. This river corresponds to the present believer's experience of the outflow of the Spirit and eternal life. And the tree has a similar lineage. The qualities of the tree of life in the garden are explained in Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like... This is after the fall, mind you. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That is, the tree of life, like the river of the water of life, is all about eternal life and immortal life with Christ and Father God. It may be that these are literal elements in the New Jerusalem, perhaps. But I'm talking about what they stand for, what they mean to us today, and what they mean even then. In this vision, they both serve to represent the unending life in God for those residing there. Verse 2 states that the tree, quote, bears fruit every month, end quote. But in, in, a, in a city and land that is eternal, not to mention without a sun or moon to mark the time, the word month is simply an anthropomorphic expression describing the qualities of eternity with familiar terms. The last portion of verse 2 is very important to those who claim this is describing the millennium. For what need is there for healing? Now, all of our versions, I believe, have healing in the eternal perfect state. So why, what do we need healing for? We're all glorified, right? Well, that's a good point. Except they fail to mention that the word translated healing by all our versions, it's therapie, Therapy, therapie, can also mean attending to good health. Some commentator, I forget who, likened it to the difference between pills and vitamins. 
one fixes what's wrong, the other just makes you healthier. Well, I'm not sure how that goes with the eternal state either, but it's kind of an interesting thing. Young's literal translation translates it service instead of healing, service. But again, either interpretation assumes the tree is literally there. So we could liken this fruit to just, I think it was MacArthur who said that when people say, well, do we eat in the, in the eternal state? Do we, do we eat? Well, Jesus ate when he was in a glorified body. And he, he, his conjecture was that, well, in the glorified state, in the eternal state, we'll eat for enjoyment. Well, I do that now. I don't know about anybody else. But I don't need to be eternal for that. Uh, so there, there's far more that we don't know about the eternal state than we do know. Verse 3 succinctly paraphrases chapter 21, verse 4, that all the evil attendant to living and fallen flesh will not exist in the eternal state. And if one lets one's, if one lets one's mind soar, which mine tends to do at the drop of a hat, the end of verse 3 through verse 5 offers a fascinating picture of the life enjoyed in the eternal state. <laughs> I, should, I, I can do this. This is like the last day of school, right? We can be on. I, I, I showed this to Linda after I was editing the audio. I said, this is why I lose my place. Can everybody see that? This is why I lose my place sometimes. Can't find where I'm at. I got lines, colored lines and notes written in all over in, uh, here. And anyway... This is the last day of school. We can do this. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. What will we be doing for all eternity? We'll be serving our God and King. All that that will entail, we cannot say. But I can assure you of one thing that it will entail. Worship. Do you need a definition or picture for that word? Are you unsure what worship actually is? Do you wonder what the grammar of worship will be and should be even now? Well, we have that right here in this study. Chapters 4 and 5, chapter 15 and the first six verses of chapter 19. All of those give us a very accurate, God-ordained picture of worship. What real worship is. And that's what we'll be doing for all eternity. Plus other stuff, I believe. But if we're serving God for eternity, then that service, whatever form it takes will be a form of worship. We will not be bored. It will not become monotonous, but we'll love every minute. 
As John MacArthur writes, quote, life in heaven will be fully energized, rich, and exciting. His bondservants will spend all eternity carrying out the infinite variety of tasks that the limitless mind of God can conceive, end quote. It goes on to say, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. As the Apostle Paul wrote, and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. Whenever I imagine an eternity with God, as it's described in His Word, frankly, my first instinct is to shudder with apprehension. Just being honest. For in a number of ways, it describes an existence the polar opposite of that with which I'm comfortable now. Constant, bright, piercing light? When I prefer dim light, even the shadows. Living with lots of people when I prefer solitude? I will have to be changed. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm going to be miserable for eternity. And I'll bet some of you have some similar thoughts. How about those who are afraid of heights? What if Jesus gives you an apartment on floor 559? Remember, Jerusalem's 1,500 miles high. You can't even see the ground from there. You'll have to be changed. Our minds will have to be changed. Our priorities. Oh, right. And one of those changes will be that we'll be able to survive seeing the face of God. That'll take a change too. We can't do that now. If we saw God, actual God, right now, boop, done, gone, poof. We will be able to survive seeing the face of God. We will glory in His glory. We will bathe in it. And we will glory in the privilege of being named as belonging to Him. We will not be deity, but we will be kin. Not just positionally, as now, but actually, physically. Right now we cannot see Him. We would die if we saw Him face to face, but we will be changed. We will be able to see Him face to face and we will glory in it. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Let me add just a quick note here. Over the last several weeks, some have come up to me to point out that the text is different from the absolute no more night. Period. 
to the more vague, have no need of the light of the sun or the moon. Yeah, there is a difference. That doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't exist. I would posit, why would God destroy all the earth, all the universe? Nothing is there. Nothing. Then create a new universe and new earth and include things that we don't need. Why would he make a new sun and a new moon to go with an earth that no longer needs those? That doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't quite track. So my personal position is that there is no sun, there is no moon, because why would God have created them? Verse 5 reiterates what was stated in 21, verses 23 to 25. Beyond that, however, if you will permit me, I would like to suggest a possible double meaning in that phrase, the Lord God will illumine them, or your, your version might say, give them light, or enlighten. The Greek phototzo can refer to either physical light, as from turning on the light in a room, or inner illumination. Or enlightenment. Can either one. Which is how it's used in Ephesians 1.18. I would suggest that both of these meanings can be seen here. The Lord God replaces the sun and the moon with his self-generated glory, rendering artificial light unnecessary. But he also shares with the saints, now like him, the text says, some of his own qualities of inner illumination, understanding. That's another way we are changed. Now, John MacArthur suggests that verses 6 to 21 form an epilogue to the book of Revelation, and that's not a bad way to think of it. It does serve to kind of wrap things up. By this point, the narrative, the timeline of the eschaton is finished. We're done. We've seen all the dynamic changes we're going to see from the rapture and the Lamb breaking open the scroll of the seven seals with the ordered destruction they release to the perfect bliss of the eternal state in the new Jerusalem. The narrative from the end of the church age has covered a little more than 1,007 years. We've seen that this present earth will be bruised and battered and eventually reshaped beyond recognition before being destroyed utterly. We've seen its people withstand relentless plagues and earthquakes and supernatural phenomena that one would think will drive a sane man to madness. We've seen evil triumph and evil be completely eradicated. Just as Pastor said this morning, death, we've seen, death will end up in the lake of fire. And we've seen our Savior behaving and speaking in ways we never have before. Now in this epilogue, Jesus speaks again not as the reigning king over the eternal state. It's a different voice. 
but once again the resurrected heavenly Lord at the right hand of the Father. Remember that when Jesus is speaking here in chapter 22, He's not speaking as the Lord who has just consigned Satan to the lake of fire. He's speaking as who He is right now. As our Lord sitting at the right hand of the Father. Here is not the voice of the wrathful judge upon the great white throne, but the same voice heard as the revelation opened. Chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. That's what we've just finished looking at. Sidebar. Three times in this epilogue, Christ Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Each statement includes its unique context. But we should not read any of these as Christ saying in the first century to John that he was about then to return, as if just days away. He would have been a liar if he had said that. The word translated quickly, takis, is used here to express his coming swiftly, unexpectedly, as he says himself, as a thief in the night. Not necessarily immediately. It just means be ready. Could happen any time. When it happens, it'll be fast and unexpected. In verse 6, John records the same angel who showed him the city, saying to him, These words are faithful and true. That is, if I might paraphrase, Everything that has been shown to you, told you, and experienced by you has been the truth. It will happen. So put it down for all posterity. And Jesus himself in verse 7 places the exclamation point after with, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. These words, faithful and true, elsewhere assigned to Jesus himself. He is the faithful and true. They mean that what the inspired apostle has written is not mystical. The apocalypse is not a record of his bizarre dreams or the result of an overactive imagination. It is not an allegory from which readers can extract hidden meanings of their own concoction. It is an accurate description of events and persons yet to come. What does it mean for us today to heed or keep, depending on your version, the prophecy of this book? Once again, we could certainly fill an entire session with the answer to that. Oddly enough, what it does not refer to is making a detailed study of it complete with full-color charts. Oops. What it does, however, is that we are to not just be ready for the last things, but to long for it. To embrace its certainty and the joy that will be ours in it. To be inspired by its picture of our reigning king, of his taking his throne, judging and ruling over all. To love him all the more for it. 
to be reassured by its promise that those who embrace evil will one day pay for their deeds and their rejection of Christ. God is long-suffering, but He does not forget what they have done. Not least, the last thing's narrative should drive us to our knees, to fall down in worship of the majesty and power of our God and our sovereign Lord. Verse 9. In verses 8 to 9, John repeats the same mistake he made in 19, chapter 19, verse 10, worshiping an angel. I don't know about you, but I can't throw stones at the poor guy. I think if I had just been through what he has, I'd be half out of my mind and bowing down to every sprouting turnip in my path. To say John is overwhelmed, even befuddled, and rightly so, is an understatement in the extreme. But the angel makes an excellent point for us today. Worship God, he says. Don't worship me, worship God. No one else, no thing else, just God alone, period. Verse 10, and he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Right after the rapture, One of the first events of the final days is the unsealing of the scroll by the Lamb. Christ Jesus, chapter 5 to 617. The contents of that scroll had been sealed and hidden sometime in eternity past until the assigned day of their revelation. Hence the name of this book. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 10 of this chapter, the angel tells John not to do this with what he's just recorded, but to make it freely available. Instead, indeed, to proclaim its truth. And regarding the reception of that truth, the angel goes on to say in verse 11, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. The prophecies of the Revelation are here for any and all to hear and read. Here, I think there's a subtext to this paragraph, this verse, that's hard for us. It's hard truth. These words are not sealed up. They're freely available. We each will be held responsible for how we, re- we receive it. If we turn away from or scoff at its truths, then there's no other message that will work. If the warnings of the, books, of the book are not sufficient, there's no more that God has to say. He's given us everything we need. The wicked must continue in their wicked way and be judged by the Lord when He comes. This is drawn from Walvard, and he says, There is a sense in which present choices fix character. A time is coming when change will be impossible. Present choices will become permanent in character. That's a frightening thought. That's hard truth. 
But when you read God's Word as a whole, that seems to be the picture that God keeps saying, please, please, I've given you my Savior. Please, come to me. Please, answer the Spirit when He calls on you. Please. But there comes a point where He says, okay, you're in it. You've made your decision. I'm done asking. Jesus himself presses the message in verses 12 to 13. He said, please, please hear me and believe. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. As we've seen in this narrative, all judgment has been handed over to the Son by the Father. When Jesus comes, He will first determine whether or not one belongs to Him. If so, he or she will be rewarded. If not, there will be no second chance. But the reward, in scare quotes, will be eternal punishment and misery. So to the reader of these words, he still pleads, I am the one, I'm the first, the last, the Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. I am who I say I am. I created this world. I will uncreate when the day arrives. Listen to me. Believe in me. In verses 14 to 15, the apostle offers a marked contrast. It's it's almost as if they turned down the volume a little bit. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Then the volume goes back up. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I do not believe in my lifetime. The contrast between the redeemed and the unregenerate has been so stark and so obvious as today. I was born smack in the middle of the previous century. And in the 1950s, one could walk down the street or attend a gathering, and there was no obvious difference between Christian and unbeliever. Everyone looked pretty much the same, behaved the same, spoke the same. Hearts were different. But on the surface, everybody looked pretty much the same. There was, with only the rarest exceptions, civility and good manners all around. And young women wore skirts with about that much petticoats underneath. Poodle skirts. Not so today. In the 1950s, verse 15 would have have read as some bizarre exaggeration presented for effect, to shock. Today, it's a fairly accurate description of the militant lost and what they stand for and press upon us at every turn. 
And now we come to the last invitation. The final invitation to repentance in God's Word is prefaced by Christ Himself. We've seen verses and passages to which it can be a challenge to assign their speaker, but certainly not verse 16. First, He addresses John, His faithful apostle. Then He validates Himself for all. I, Jesus, have sent My angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Did you get that? He is both. He's the root. He's the source. And He's the descendant. Psalm 2. There it is. In other words, I am indeed the prophesied Messiah, the God-man who will reign on the throne of David forever. As Yahweh told David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. Verse 17 contains the Lamb's final invitation, voiced by the Apostle. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And although the warning and validation of verses 18 to 19 are not presented as spoken by Christ, He is the one who testifies to them in verse 20. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And John adds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In that last sentence, the Apostle John speaks for all those who long for the return of our Lord. For we individually and collectively, as the church, adore Him. He is our beloved. Now, Joseph A. Seiss pictures the church as a young lady waiting for her lover to return, which serves as a suitable postscript to this study. I close with this. Joseph A. Seiss, back when the people knew how to write. Fiction has painted the picture of a maiden whose lover left her for a voyage to the Holy Land promising on his return to make her his beloved bride. Many told her that she would never see him again, but she believed his word. And evening by evening she went down to the lonely shore and kindled there a beacon light in sight of the roaring waves to hail and welcome the returning ship which was to bring again her betrothed. And by that watchfire she took her stand each night praying to the winds to hasten on the sluggish sails, that he who was everything to her might come. 
even so that blessed Lord, who has loved us unto death, has gone away to the mysterious holy land of heaven, promising on his return to make us his happy and eternal bride. Some say that he is gone forever, and that here we shall never see him more. But his last word was, Yea, yea, I come quickly. And on the dark and misty beach, sloping out into the eternal sea, each true believer stands by the love-lit fire, looking and waiting and praying and hoping for the fulfillment of his work, in nothing gladder than in his pledge and promise and calling ever from the soul of sacred love, even so come, Lord Jesus. And some of these nights, while the world is busy with its gay frivolities and laughing at the maiden on the shore, a form shall rise over the surging waves, as once on Galilee, to vindicate forever all this watching and devotion and bring to the faithful and constant heart a joy and glory and triumph which nevermore shall end. And amen. Our Father God, in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, We thank you for your word. Thank you for putting all this down. And thank you for giving us the endurance to study it. The determination. And the joy. Thank you for your patience with us, your long-suffering. And thank you for all that you've given us here in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.